Hello and welcome to episode number eight of the Hafey Digital Podcast, a show for creators, makers, and doers. My name is Ryan Hafey, and uh, in this episode, we are going to be talking about, we're going back to the basics. We're talking about exposure and frame rates. Let's get into it. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, like I said, today we're taking things back to the bare basics. We're going to talk about exposure. We're going to go through why exposure and understand how understanding can, exposure can help you create better photos, better videos, and just uh, overall enjoy the look of what you're doing a little bit more than may say, maybe say, for example, using just the uh, the automatic settings on whatever camera you may have. Also want to talk a little bit about frame rates, talk about why, um, what the difference is between all the frame rates, how frame rates interact with your exposure settings, all that kind of stuff. But first, of course, we got to talk about, um, we got to talk about, we got to talk about studio updates. By the way, am I clipping a little bit? Sounds like I might be clipping just a little bit. Can't really tell. Let's see. Okay. It looks like we're doing okay. Anyway. Studio updates. So I know last time we talked a little bit about um, audio. Um, I was having some issues with getting the audio that I liked. Um, the The filters inside of OBS, the audio filters that they offer, some of them are okay, but for the most part, they're crap. The noise suppression one, which was one that I was really hopeful for, because back here I've got a PC which has a fan that's running pretty hot right now because I'm streaming and recording this at the same time. Um, but also over here, uh, I've got a video light that has a fan on it as well. So there's there's a decent amount of background noise that's going on. So my goal was to obviously reduce that. But anytime I turn on that noise suppression filter within OBS, it would just sound like a garbled, a garbled mess. So um, at some point, someone mentioned using an expander. I tried out the expander. That seemed to work out decently well, and I'm actually still using it now. Um, but... I, I was trying to find some VST plugins. I believe I mentioned this in the last episode as well. OBS allows you to incorporate some VST 2.0 or 2.x plugins, and uh, you can use those to kind of modify your audio, your outbound audio. So um, I looked all over for them. My dad, who I believe I mentioned uh, was an audio engineer for most of my life and is actually still doing some audio stuff today, um, suggested some uh, plugins from Waves. Waves.com, which I'd never heard of before. They offer tons of different audio plugins, though. Um, but uh, it was kind of unclear whether or not they would work. He sent me kind of an old bundle that he had from years ago. Uh, I tried them for whatever reason. They didn't work. I actually reached out to the Waves team to see if any of them, um, if, if they could suggest or if they knew if any of their plugins worked well with uh, OBS. And they they didn't actually know. They But, I mean, to their credit, they just hadn't tested with OBS and that's not really who they make plugins for typically, as far as I know, at least. So, um, but I tried them out. Unfortunately, those didn't work, but there are these plugins that you can get that I, in searches are, I found are pretty prevalent when it comes to OBS and those are REA, I don't know how, Replugs, REA plugs, uh, VSD plugins by Reaper. I think there's a link currently in the description of this video. So, um, you can download a pack of them. There was, I forget, maybe like eight or 10 of them or something like that. 
and but they're they're very um, there's not a whole lot of defaults or presets that you can use. So if you are going to use them, you kind of have to know what the parameters are that you're adjusting. Um, but for me, I went ahead and I think I put a couple. No, I just use a, a parametric equalizer. So one of the, the plugins is a parametric equalizer. So I'm using that and then I'm using the default limiter and expander within OBS. So I tweaked the expander settings a little bit because I didn't like how much of the background noise would creep in at the front and tail end of whenever I would say something. As I would start to speak, you would kind of hear the background noise get introduced. And it's I think it's probably still there a little bit. I feel like I dialed it in a little bit better at least. Um, not perfect, but it is what it is. And uh, yeah, so I'm working with that. Uh, I would still, if anybody out there knows of any, and I'll, and I'll pay for some, I mean, free is obviously best if I can find them and if they work, but if anyone has any suggestions for some good VST plugins that work with OBS that are maybe more, a little more beginner friendly uh, for someone such as myself, who I know some things about audio, but not I'm not a big audio guy. Uh, I would love to hear your suggestions. So leave a comment um, and let me know what you come up with. So that's kind of the update on the audio situation. The other update that I had, it's not really much of an update, just something I wanted to show off. One second here. So now this is not a new camera or a new lens or new anything really. Um, actually, it's this is what I wanted to show off here. For those of you just listening, um, I have a Sony a7 III. And on it, I have a small rig cage, and these small rig cages are awesome um, just because, obviously, a little layer of protection, but be, they also have the different um, threaded slots all around it so you can basically adapt anything to them that you want. Uh, but when I was on the creator retreat that I mentioned a few episodes ago in uh, California, one of the guys, Ben, Ben, what's up if you're watching, um, he had this handle on his, his uh, Sony a7 III, which he also had the same cage. And I was kind of eyeballing this for a little while and never picked it up. But now um, I, I decided that it was time. And part of the reason why I decided it was time is because I got this um, Atomos Shinobi monitor for Christmas. This is one of my Christmas presents for my wife. And um, with this handle and kind of this extra weight, and by the way, this big old battery on the back sort of acts as a counterweight on there, um, it's just a little bit easier to hold in the hand. I find that it's kind of it can be easier to hold like this with maybe a little um, bit of support on the right side versus saying just holding the camera on both sides. Plus, obviously, if you have an Atomos monitor, you're going to have a lot easier time seeing what you're looking at. And there's tons of different features on there, like you know, Lumetri, uh, not Lumetri scopes, but uh, like YV scopes and um, like focus assists and things like that, histograms, all sorts of stuff. So, um, and by the way, this on the front here is a 35 miller a 35 millimeter Rokinon lens, all manual lens, a little, just one of their kind of cheaper cinema lenses, probably around 400 bucks or something like that. Um, but with the focus assist on the Atomos and that kind of the ability to hold the camera like this, if I want to, and keep it pretty stable, I can actually use some manual focus, which I've been wanting to do more of anyway, get kind of familiar with using manual focus. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoy it and it kind of, legit makes my uh my camera setup look a little more legit <laughs> look a little more legit so yeah anyway put that up there and really that's the end of the updates for this week uh, and i didn't want to spend too much time on updates anyway because we have a lot to talk about in our main topic which again is the basics of exposure 
and frame rates. Now, and let's just let's just jump into it. What I've seen, what I've noticed a lot. Well, first of all, camera technology today is amazing. Everyone has a phone in their pocket, and you know, even if you have a camera that you purchased, whatever, they've all got some really terrific features to choose from. Um, automatically, I I don't know. I only know maybe a couple, a handful of people who will pull out their phones and actually manually select their, their exposure settings on their phones before taking a picture. I know I don't. I mean, typically, sometimes I'll use the Lightroom app for specific things, but most of the time I'm just taking the phone up and snapping a shot. Um, I think, though, these days there's a lot of people who think because this technology is so readily available and because some of these automatic features are so easy to use and because in most cases you can get decent results by just using automatic settings there's kind of a stigma um or not a stigma but i think everyone thinks they can be a photographer or a videographer by just kind of turning on the camera and going and i think anyone who's been around for long enough and who's done accomplished anything in the photo or video space they'll tell you that um you're missing out on a lot of creative control when you just turn on the camera and switch it to the auto setting. Um, so I think that understanding exposure, how all the different exposure settings kind of work together, uh, understanding that deeply will give you a better handle on, um, it'll give you more control of over your image because it's just, it's, there's much more to it than just figuring out how to get the right exposure level. And we will talk about all of that here in a little bit. So, but let's go into it. So exposure, a lot of people, when they think of exposure, they think of the exposure triangle, which this exposure triangle consists of aperture, shutter speed, and ISO. So let's go into those one at a time here. And actually, I wonder if I, yes, I could probably use this. So I've grabbed a, uh, my 85 millimeter Rokinon cinema lens from my shelf here. To use as kind of a um, a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just as an example for what I'm talking about when it comes to exposure. So, or when it comes to aperture. So, think about aperture as like your pupil. When it gets dark out, your pupil, your pupil, you it. <laughs> your pupils get larger to let in more light, and when it's bright out, your pupils get smaller. The aperture of a camera works the exact same way. So, let's see if you can see this. If you're watching. Uh, on the camera there, as I close the aperture, now I'm going to let in much less light through this camera or through this lens. And then if I open the aperture, you're going to let in a ton of light into the lens. And that's just how apertures work. So in other words, aperture controls the amount of light that you're letting into your camera and your, um, and how much light you're allowing to touch the sensor of the camera, if that makes sense. Um, but that's not all that aperture does. So another thing that aperture controls is your depth of field. And depth of field is kind of like the focal plane. So, and if I had prepared for this episode a little bit more, I might've pulled up some pictures to show you some examples of things. Actually, you know what? We could probably do it. Hang on, hang on. I've been trying to slow down a little bit in these episodes. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to slow down. We're going to take our time. Okay. Depth of 
you know, I'm going to search for shallow depth of field. Let's look at images. Okay. So when you open your aperture very wide and let in a lot of light, the other, um, the other consequence of that is that you're going to get a shallow depth of field, which means you're going to have a very small focal plane. So if, if someone, and let's go back to this view just for a moment. So if someone was um, pointing a camera at me and they had a very wide aperture, wide open, which means it's a, and you'll often see aperture, um, uh, what's the, the value, the aperture value listed as the F number, usually like F forward slash, and it's everywhere, anywhere from like 2.8 to 4, 5.6. There's different increments of, of aperture. It's kind of counterintuitive. The smaller the aperture number, the wider the aperture opening. It's a, it's a fraction. I forget the, the fraction off the top of my head, but it's something like the, the focal length divided by the actual diameter of the opening, something along those lines. But, you know, don't, don't quote me on that. But anyway, so if someone is taking a photo of me with a very wide aperture, which means I'm going to have a shallow depth of field, It'll look like like my eyes will be in, in uh, focus, but my nose and my ears might be out of focus. That's how a shallow depth of field works. It's it's a very stylized look. And let's see if we can find a good example of that here. Um, that's going to take me to this website here. This is kind of a good example. This shot here, you can see you can, the hands are clearly in focus, and then the rest of the person's body is way out of focus. Um, this is kind of another good example. You see that the hair here is very well in focus and the nose is out of focus. That's because all these shots have a very shallow depth of field. Now, on the contrary, let's go back here. If we were to take, if we were to close down the aperture, meaning make it a much smaller opening, uh, it's going to let in much less light, but it's also going to give you a deeper depth of field, which means that more things in the, in the photo are going to be in focus. So if we search for deep depth of field, and you'll see this, uh, this type of, you know, the deep depth of field used a lot in landscape photography, because obviously if you're shooting a wide landscape, you don't, you don't want to get just one thing in focus. You want to get as much in focus as you can. So just kind of taking this first, shot as an example. I mean, this not the best idea, but this is an example of a shot that would have a very deep depth of field. You can see in the photo, well, let me go to the screen here. You can see in the photo that everything for the most part is in focus. And that's the result of using a smaller aperture for the most part. So that's one thing. That's one way that, again, Yes, you're dialing in your exposure with the aperture, but you're also you also have to make a decision about okay, how much light do I want to let in, let in? Number one, but how what kind of depth of field do I want to let in? Number two. Now, if you're out in a sunny situation, let's say it's super bright outside, um, you might think, well, I just want to you know stop down my aperture and real small um, so that I'm letting in as little light as possible. Otherwise, all my images are going to be blown out. But what if you want a shallow depth of field? you would need to open the aperture. So you ha you really have to think, and, and, and in doing so, you would have to compensate in the other areas of exposure, which we'll get into shortly. But those are just kind of the things that you should be thinking about as you're going 
through and figuring out how you're going to dial in your exposure settings. Going back to what I was saying about using a camera on full auto, on full auto, if you just turn on the camera, put it on auto and hit the shutter, you lose control of all those creative decisions. What your aperture set at is gone. You know, what your ISO, shutter speed, all that's gone and the camera chooses it and it may not be what you wanted. And then you might look at your stuff and, and see like, well, how come my stuff doesn't look like this other person's stuff who is maybe making more calculated decisions about those types of things. Now, and I should clarify again before I go too far into this, where the stigma exists is I is in using automatic settings. I think, and I've, I've gone through this for a long time, which actually for me was kind of beneficial in a way in that um, it forced me to use all manual. I was sort of under the impression like I should, I should never use automatic settings. So I got actually really used to using manual settings, which benefited me in the long run. And I would actually advise people, like if you really want to figure out exposure and how it works, only use manual settings, choose everything yourself. You might be a little bit slower at first, but you get used to it over time. But anyway, I think there is a place for using automatic settings if done correctly. For example, um, a DSLR or mirrorless camera will typically have a shutter priority mode or an aperture priority mode, which means that you know, if it's in shutter priority, um, you dial in the shutter speed so that it doesn't change. And then the camera will take over elsewhere. So for example, if you're shooting something and your main concern is I just want to make sure that I'm freezing action, you might want to choose shutter priority mode, set your shutter to a high speed, and then allow the camera to determine what the aperture and ISO should be from there. So there are ways in which it can be beneficial. And especially if you're kind of running gun shooting, um, automatic settings can come in handy, but I still advise against using fully automatic settings anyway. So that, that was a nice digress there, but aperture, like the pupil, pupil of your eye, it, uh, determines the depth of field, a wider aperture, meaning a lower F number is going to give you a shallow depth of field and let in more light, a smaller aperture, meaning a bigger F number is going to let in less light but give you a deeper depth of field. And typically um, the F range, the, the aperture range on a lens will vary depending on the lens. So for example, this lens, which is a 24 to 70, um, this is, has a, a, the maximum aperture is F 2.8. And I believe it goes all the way up to F 22. Um, I've got this lens. <sighs> This lens here, which is the uh, Sony 135, has a maximum aperture of f 1.8, which means it's going to let in even more light than that uh, 24 to 70 because it can, its aperture can get wider. So anyway, so that's aperture. Let's move on. Let's talk about shutter speed now. Shutter speed. So if aperture is what determines how much light hits the sensor of the camera, Shutter speed is what determines how long the, that light is allowed to hit the sensor. So shutter speed, and I'm wondering if I can show this to you here. So what I have here, this is a, this I've shown this before, but this is my Miranda Auto Sensor X EE film camera from the 1970s that used to belong to my uh, grandparents. But uh, I'm gonna see if I can use this to kind of illustrate what shutter speed looks like here. So let's see, is it gonna, there you go. 
So shutter speed, and let's let's play with this focus here a little bit. All right. So this mirror in here is what determines. It's basically covering. In this case, it'd be the film, but imagine the film is a sensor, like in a digital camera. When I press the shutter button, you'll see it flip up and then flip back down. That amount of time that it's flipped up, that's the amount of time that the light has to touch the sensor. In this case, it looks like it's set to one fifteenth of a second. So ready? Here we go. Three, two, one. There you go. So you can set it faster or slower depending on your preference. Now, um, obviously, the faster that you set your shutter speed, the less light that is going to be allowed into your camera. We talked about this in last week's podcast. Oh, let me fix my... There we go. We talked about this in last week's podcast when it comes to boxing photography. My goal when I'm shooting boxing, for the most part, is to freeze that action. I don't want a ton of motion blur. I don't want a ton of you know, trails in my photos when I'm shooting boxing. I want to freeze the action and get all that sweat flying and all that kind of stuff. In that case, I need to crank up my shutter speed. I need a much faster shutter speed so that it's only allowing a small fraction of that light in, and that's what's going to freeze the action. So yes, shutter speed is going to help determine your exposure, but how you set your shutter speed is also going to determine what your subjects are going to look like in your photo or video. And actually, we'll be talking a little bit later when we get into frame rates about how shutter speed and frame rates interact. So stick around for that if that's something that interests you. So recapping shutter speed. Shutter speed is what determines how long light is allowed to touch the sensor of your camera, but it also determines the, determines the amount of motion blur you will see in your final photo. A fast shutter speed is going to freeze action. A slow shutter speed is going to give you some motion blur and some trails. You can kind of see how there's like a trail if I move my hand across the screen fast enough. So that's shutter speed. Finally, uh, we move to ISO. ISO, which stands for, I believe, International Standards Organization, um, just basically refers to the sensitivity of your sensor, the sensitivity to light. A lower ISO, oh, let me back up. I missed one point on the, on the shutter speed. Yes, shutter speed is measured in seconds, oftentimes fractions of a second because of you know, most people aren't shooting with long exposure. So you'll have one sixtieth of a second. And when I'm shooting boxing, it's one eight hundredth or one one thousandth of a second. But on the other hand, if you're shooting something like astrophotography, you might be using a 20 second uh, shutter speed or 30 second shutter speed. It all it really all depends on what you're doing. Um, back to ISO. So a low ISO number means your sensor is less sensitive to light. Right, So a lower ISO means that your images on average are going to be less, they're going to be darker. Crank up that ISO and your pictures are going to be brighter. Now this is, think of ISO as like, um, like gain on, let's say you're playing some music in your car or on a stereo system, whatever. If there's not a lot of stuff going on in the room, you can kind of keep your music turned down a little bit and the music's going to sound nice. It's going to sound clear. But the more that you start to crank up your music, you'll notice that it starts to get really distorted, really crackly. It's not going to sound very good. That's kind of what ISO is in the photo and video world. It's like audio gain. The more you crank up the ISO, the yes, you're, you will have brighter images or video. However, um, you will typically start to introduce some noise, some, and you look like kind of dust, whatever, or, or just 
just noise. You'll you'll know. Let's see. Let's bring up the Googles again here. I'll show you what some of that noise looks like. ISO noise. One of these days I'm going to be searching something on Google, and it's going to bring up an unwanted um, result here. Okay, this, this is a cool chart. So this gives you a good idea of what the different ISO ranges can look like. Let's bring up the screen view here. So, and it looks like this is a video. This is just a thumbnail for a video, but this illustrates my point. So ISO 160. See, there's little grain, a little, a little bit of noise there. And then as you progress up in the ISO range, up to 6400, then you're introducing a lot of artifacts, a lot of noise. Um, maybe that's what you want in your shots. In a lot of cases, that's not what people want in their shots. So they typically try to aim for a lower ISO when at all possible. Now, I will say um, with modern cameras, uh, what you choose for your ISO is becoming less important because the the low light capabilities in a lot of these cameras is becoming really good. I know the Sony line, as you know, I'm a fan of, is very good in low light. The uh, Sony a7 III is awesome. The Sony a7S II is fantastic in low light. Um, so you can crank it up a little bit higher than you might be able to on other cameras. My last camera, my last photo camera before I switched fully to Sony was a Canon 7D Mark II. And I would shoot some event, event photography with that um, when, you know, really all you have is bright stage lights occasionally. And other than that, it's just darkness. And I used to have to crank up the ISO and I ended up having to do a lot of noise reduction in post because I was just introducing so much noise. So a general rule of thumb when it comes to ISO is try to keep it as low as you possibly can and uh, crank it up if you need to just to compensate for exposure levels. Okay, so... This is a lot of information. If this is a new topic for you, this is a lot to take in and a lot to remember. So it might even be helpful to write all the all of this down. But let's go ahead and we're going to recap everything I just said in a nutshell. Exposure triangle consists of ISO, aperture, and shutter speed. Aperture is like your pupil on your eye. The darker, uh, the wider you make your aperture, the more light you're going to let in, and the shallower your depth of field is. And, a, and the smaller you make your aperture, the less light you're going to be letting in, and the deeper your depth of field is going to be. And aperture is typically given in values of the letter F, followed by a forward slash and a number, whether it be 1.8, 2, 2.8, 3.2, 4, 4.5, 5, 5.6, etc., etc., etc. There's a typically a progression. So that's aperture. Shutter speed. Shutter speed determines how long light is allowed to touch the sensor or film in your camera. Um, a fast shutter speed is going to freeze that action. A slow shutter speed is going to give you a little bit of motion blur. ISO is like gain for um, light. A lower ISO is going to give you darker photos. A higher ISO is going to give you brighter photos. A lower ISO is going to give you clearer photos. A higher ISO is going to give you uh, more noisy photos and video because you're introducing, uh, because you're, you're cranking it up so high. It's just going to introduce some noise because you're sort of um, turning up this artificial value, if that makes if that makes sense. So, hope that makes sense. And I kind of jumped around there, but that's exposure. And I think if you practice those things, if you say, if you if you think a little bit about what kind of look you're going for um, before you go in and shoot, 
uh, you'll you'll be able to adjust your exposure accordingly, and you'll have uh, you'll get a better result. If you're going in to shoot portraits, you're like, you know what, I want a really nice shallow depth of field in these portraits. Um, then you're going to want to open your aperture nice and wide, and uh, and you know your shutter speed and your ISO may be secondary. Uh, if you're shooting sports, you may want to determine that okay, shutter speed is my my number one um, most important exposure value. And you're going to set that first and then set aperture and ISO accordingly after. Um, so it just takes, just, just takes some time to think about the kind of look you're going for. Um, and then you can adjust from there. All right. So now let's talk a little bit about frame rates. So all those exposure, um, all that exposure talk really applies. I mean, it applies both to photo and video. But now when you add in the concept of frame rates, that's when you're really getting into the video side, obviously. So understanding exposure is important for both the frame rates when you're getting into video. This is where it gets interesting. So there are some common frame rate values. Um, typically, anything cinema related, if you go to the movies, uh, you're going to be looking at 24 frames per second. That's kind of like a cinematic standard. Um, you'll see differing... I've seen a number of things that talk about how we came to use 24 frames per second. I don't remember the exact history of it. It's kind of just something that we've settled on as far as I understand, but it does give you kind of a, a naturalistic motion blur. So right now I'm filming on 24 frames per second. You can see that my hand, as I move it across, there's a little bit of motion blur and that is a more natural motion blur. That's why um, we like it in cinema because we want cinema to kind of look real or hyper real. Um, but that natural motion blur aids in that. Um, then you have 30 frames per second. 30 frames per second is pretty common when it comes to home video footage, um, news broadcasts, soap operas, I believe, are typically shot at 30 frames per second. 30, fr 30 frames per second is, um, it's, um, yeah, it's just going to give you more of that home video look, right? And then there are other frame rates that, you know, you have 60 frames per second, which you'll see some YouTubers use 60 frames per second. Um, I know in gaming, they like to use uh, 60 frames per second for, um, for the actual video games. Um, and uh, I like when I use 60 frames per second, it's almost always for the sake of being able to stretch it out in post and do some slow-mo with it. Thing, same thing when it comes to like 120 frames per second. Under 20 frames per second, um, if you put that footage on a 24 frames per second timeline, you can slow it down to 20%. And now you've got some nice, silky, smooth, slow motion footage. So typically, at least for my purposes, I don't typically film at 60 or 120 frames per second for the sake of exporting 60 or 120 frames per second footage. Does that make any sense? Now, when it comes to video, um, yes, aperture, ISO, those are important values to, to keep in mind, but shutter speed is one that you want to pay a little bit extra attention to um, depending on what your frame rate is. So the rule of thumb, it's like the 180 degree rule. The rule of thumb is you want to have your frame rate double that no, I'm sorry. You want to have your shutter speed double that of your frame rate. So if your frame rate is 24 frames per second, i.e. 1 over 24, um, then your shutter speed should be 1 48th of a second. Now, 
most cameras, uh, most consumer cameras are not going to have a 148th shutter. So for example, in my case, I would, I typically use 150th as my shutter speed when shooting at 24 frames per second. If you're shooting at 30 frames per second, you would want to use a shutter speed of uh, 160th, 60 frames, 120th, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, One of the benefits of shooting at 24 frames per second is that you get to decrease your um, shutter speed a little bit, which can help you bring in a little bit more light if you need it. Um, Just one thing to consider there. But with shutter speed, uh, and and by the way, the reason that that applies, why why they do that is, again, because it aids in sort of creating that naturalistic motion blur. At 24 frames per second, you can still get kind of a, you can, you can, if you crank up your shutter speed, and I don't know if I can do this on the fly. I'm wondering if I can. No, I don't think I can. I was going to see if I can maybe change it on the camera here to a, a higher shutter speed just momentarily to give you kind of an example. But if I were to adjust this camera and crank up my shutter speed while filming here at 24 frames per second, as I wave my hand across, you're, you're going to lose some of that trail of motion blur. It's not, it's, it's going to be very more, much more staccato kind of like this versus like this, because it's freezing more of the action. Think of it this way. When it comes to the relationship between frame rates and shutter speed frame rates, if you have a one twenty fourth frame rate, you're essentially your camera, your camera is essentially capturing 24 frames or 24 photos over the course of one second. And then your shutter speed determines how much or how long each of those frames is exposed for. So at 24 frames per second, if I'm shooting at 150th of a second, that means that each one of those 24 frames is being exposed for 150th of a second. I hope that makes a little more sense. So if, if you crank up your shutter speed, it doesn't really matter what your uh, frame rate is. If you crank it up, each one of those frames is going to be exposed for a much shorter period of time, which is going to freeze more of the action within each of those frames. Just like when in boxing photography, crank up the shutter speed, you're going to freeze the action. If you turn the shutter speed down, you're going to see a lot of motion blur. Motion blur. So again, it comes down to the style you're looking for. I know that um, I believe in like certain action movies. I think Saving Private Ryan was was one that was uh, used as an example of this. Um, they. I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe they use a high shutter speed to kind of freeze the action. That in conjunction with kind of the high energy movement and all of that uh, sort of added to the the look that they were going for, like this kind of this war-torn scene. And it 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 uh it was easier to kind of and it just it just added to the action versus using something that's gonna incorporate some more motion blur. Um by the way, I should mention when it comes to frame rates, I say for 24 frames per second, 30 frames per second. It's actually 24 frames per second is technically 23.986, I believe. And 20, 30 frames per second is 29.97. So it's not exactly, but most people will just round up to the nearest number. Um, if you're in Europe or where they use the PAL system, P-A-L, uh, you will typically see 25 frames per second as opposed to 24. Um, so it varies around the world, but here in the in the states, we typically work with 24, 30, 60, 120, etc. So I hope all of that makes sense. Yeah. So frame rates um, in video, depending on the look you're going for, you wanna you wanna be picking your frame rate accordingly. 
And that, that's why video for a lot of people is, is challenging because it's difficult enough to think about your exposure settings. But then when you get into video, now you have to consider, okay, now I have frame rates. How do I set my exposure to complement the frame rate and to get the look that I want? So it's all a very somewhat confusing ecosystem of settings and manipulating things to get the, the look that you're going for. Um, and it just takes practice. It takes a while to really get it into your head, like how everything works together, but just, just keep at it and have some fun with it. You know, have some fun with it. Oh man, are we going 37 minutes? That's crazy. Okay. So anyway, that's it. Those are my basics of exposure and frame rates. Um, hope that was helpful. Now there was one more thing that I wanted to talk about before we go. And um, I'm hoping that I can get through this without getting too emotional here. But um, where is it? Or did I close it? Hang on. So this is Boogie. He's a eight-year-old boxer pit bull. And by the way, this is a great example of um, shallow depth of field. You can see that uh, his eyes are in focus, but down here is out of focus. Anyway, I digress. But um, Boogie, unfortunately, uh, I came down this morning to let the dogs out. We have, uh, well, he's got two brothers and uh, came down this morning and found that uh, Boogie was unresponsive. And um, he, uh, yeah, he uh, passed away sometime during the night. Uh, when I found him, he was laying on his side and just wouldn't get up. And it was, it was kind of a shock because... You know, he was, he was fine the night before, and um, there was nothing. He hadn't had any real pre-existing conditions, anything to worry about. So it was very sudden, and we were all a little shook by it. So um, this is Boogie, and I just wanted to kind of give him a proper sign-off because he was my buddy. So if you have pets or just important people in your life, give him a, give him a little extra hug today because you never know when they might be gone. Anyway, thanks for watching. We'll see you in the next one.